Welcome to Spirits Podcast, a boozy dive into mythology, legends, and folklore. Every week, we pour a drink and learn about a new story from around the world. I'm Amanda. And I'm Julia. And we're joined today by author Natasha Bowen. Natasha, welcome. Thanks for having me. It is our pleasure. Um, I'm really excited because I, I picked up the book recently and I'm just very, very stoked. But can you do us a favor and tell us both a little bit about yourself and about Skin of the Sea? So I am a former teacher, a mother of three. I've been writing since I could read, which was quite young, actually. Um, I loved The Little Mermaid growing up and wanted to not necessarily do a retelling, but to tell a different version of The Little Mermaid. So I focused on West Africa, which is uh, where my father's from, and basically enjoyed immersing myself in history and different myths that represent what happened in the 15th century and um, what people believed and how that joined in with versions, different versions of mermaids. That's incredible. And would you mind giving us a quick summary of the book to kind of entice our listeners to like, hey, go pick it up because you're going to love it. So Skin of the Sea is the story of Simi. She is Mami Wata. She's a mermaid and she's been remade by a goddess called Yemoja. And her focus is to help gather the souls of those who pass in the sea in order to return them home to their maker. And one day she finds a boy who's still alive and she saves him rather than his soul. And they break an ancient decree and have to make up for that by journeying to um, seek forgiveness from the Supreme Creator. And along the way, they are faced with lots of difficulties, which I will try not to spoil, as well as you get an insight into different versions of myth. So you have where hyenas and Senegalese fairies, just to name a few. You're hitting all of our buttons with all the words that you just said. I know. You have your pitch down pat. I love it. Our listeners are going to be stoked. So I guess to get started, uh, you mentioned your father is from West Africa. I know your mom was Welsh and you grew up in England yourself. What kind of stories did you grow up with? I think I mainly, we didn't have a TV when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And so I read from an early age. Um, and the kind of books I, I was reading were books that we would buy from church sales, um, secondhand bookshops. And so my favorite book was The Little Mermaid. Um, by Hans Christian Andersen. And I mm -hmm. didn't actually watch the Disney version because we didn't have a TV. And I much preferred the kind of darker, with fairy tales, I think I preferred the darker aspects to them because obviously they were, fairy tales were to warn children and, and to keep them safe. So they were quite dark um, and grim. And yeah, so I grew up in those stories. And I think that as I got older, wanting to explore stories that were not just centered around Eurocentric tales was important. I think there's that disconnect sometimes between cultures, especially if you're second generation immigrant, where you may not have even been to one of your parents' home country. And, and it's a way to explore that part of your identity. That was definitely a focus with writing Skin of the Sea. Oh, I, I love that so much. Were you drawn to more darker stories? I, because you mentioned like, oh, the darker fairy tale version of Little Mermaid you prefer much better. Was that something that you were like, I kind of like a, a darker, more, you know, foreboding story? Completely. I'm not a fluffy type of story person. <laughs> so I always prefer the darker versions. Even teaching when we were, I was teaching six-year-olds and it was supposed to be Little Red Riding Hood. And the other teacher who I was partnered with was like, oh, it, maybe it's a little bit dark. And I'm kind of like, oh no, let's just Let's just teach it anyway. I'm sure that they can, <laughs> if you do it in the right way, they can handle it. I, I like them when they 
are more representative. Mm -hmm. And I think that as readers and even as children, you need to learn a range about the world. So not everything is fluffy and light and happy all the time, but there's usually a lesson in it. So that's what I appreciate in stories. Yeah, exactly. Like if you're going to be teaching six-year-olds, like you said, and fairy tales are all about teaching children lessons, those children should deal with the kind of like darker aspects of the fairy tales because the world is dark sometimes. Exactly. Yeah. I have a random anecdote that I experienced this morning where there's like a children's um, like a speech and physical therapy office next door to our podcast studio. And so this morning I walked in and a kid was like not wanting to go in for physical therapy and was screaming to his dad like, I don't want to go. I don't know why you signed me up for this. This is stupid and bad and I hate it. And the dad is like, listen, this is the thing that you got to do. Like, this is life. And I, I just flashed back to all the times in the past when I was a child and adults said to me, like, this is life, kid. Get over it. Like, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do. And at the time, I hated it. But now as I get older, I'm like, you know what? Somehow someone has to tell you that. And it would be much worse if you became an adult and had the great sort of privilege and luck never to have had to face anything like that. That's a way that kids and parents and communities get a chance to approach topics like death, grief, loss, bad fortune, all the things that make up our fairy tales. Completely. And I think while they're while they're difficult, there are some topics that are difficult and painful. They shouldn't be shied away from because, you know, we need to be able to teach them and have that conversation about different topics. Um, because, you know, if you don't do that, then you're not equipping them as that uh, to be adults and to deal with it with, you know, with those types of issues. So there's always a way that you can do it that's not too traumatizing, but I think it's important to to understand the good and the bad. Absolutely. Yeah, I was reading some interviews by you before and I was laughing at the line that you said in one where you skipped from children's books to Stephen King and I was like, yeah, that was me too. That's relatable. <laughs> Highly relatable. I just didn't think I found any of them interesting. I think you know, I was stuck on Nancy Drew and Sweet Valley High for a little bit. Mm -hmm. And then um, and I still don't know how we're allowed to get books out of the library. Flowers in the Attic, <laughs> I remember reading. I was probably about 11. Yeah. And then it was Strupp's Stephen King, Sean Hudson. I was very horror focused mm. and I still am. I still love zombies, but it was definitely hardcore. Yeah. Hardcore horror. So there was no, no in between, which yeah, probably would have helped because I just didn't find any of the books interesting. Right. I went through a phase at school where I just hated everything we were reading mm. and it was either just boring or dry, or maybe it was the way, I don't think it was the way it was taught necessarily. I think everything was just the same. So there was no relief. There was no kind of, yeah, there was no variety in what we were reading. So I probably, I fixed it all by reading Stephen King behind my textbooks. <laughs> I feel like a lot of YA probably at that time was very like, I'm a spunky white teen girl and I'm going to solve a mystery. So I can imagine you probably weren't seeing yourself in those kind of tales. No, and they're all the same. It's the same story. So you solve something. And I think I, I probably did maybe, like, maybe when I was about 10 and then it was like, okay, well, what's next? What else is there? Because I always want to read something different, even now. I'm like, okay, okay, I'm done with these types of stories. What else can I read? What's out there? So yeah, that was me even then. Do you feel that searching for what the next thing that you personally wanted to read was, did that kind of help inspire you to want to be a storyteller or be a writer? A hundred percent. I think I used to, I read a lot when I was younger and then I carried on reading and I, I would read walking to school. Like I walked into a lamp only once did I walk into a lamp. <laughs> but I read all the time. And so I think because I've read so much and still do read so much, you do find comfort in the same types of stories. Um, and you can go through several authors because you know that it's going to be that type of story. But 
I want something different sometimes. And it's so exciting when you do find that story that's unlike anything else you've ever really read. And that's what inspired me to write this story because I just, I wrote what I wanted to read. But I hadn't, okay, well, if I'm not seeing that, then why don't I write it? Mm -hmm. Was there a moment where you kind of had that epiphany that you remember or was it something that kind of built up inside of you over time? I think that I remember reading a book where I saw myself and I think I was 19. It took that long until I read a book where I saw myself and my peers and the area that I lived in. And that was a moment I think where I thought, oh, so there are books like this then. Because up until then, I hadn't seen any, um, especially not in England. There were um, American writers, Black American writers that I enjoyed reading, but not English ones. So especially because it's very focused if you live in a certain area, you know, like London is going to be completely different to how you grew up in New York. And so that made me think, oh, yeah, so people are doing it. I suppose it's that thing as well where it does help when you see, it definitely does help when you see people like you doing the type of thing that you would like to do or you dream of doing because then it seems more achievable. After that, every story I wrote had a character that was based around either how I looked or how my friends were or how my family was. Mm. And I think that seeing that story almost gave me permission to do that, I think, or gave me the confidence to do that. Because even now, I mean, a couple of years ago when I was teaching, children were always planning and writing stories, but they were basing it from the stories that they'd read. So all of the stories had just names that they'd read all before, like Tom and Sarah. And uh, I'm teaching children from South Asia and Africa. Well, can't we have a different name? Why don't we give them, why don't, why are we not using your name? And they actually said, oh, are we allowed to? Can we? So I think that is the importance of seeing yourself um, and seeing a wide range as well, because not just those children, but yeah, seeing different variations of, of stories and names and identities. And, and that's, yeah, so important. I love that. That's beautiful. Do you remember the name of the book that kind of inspired all this? Um, I think it was The Scholar. The Scholar, yeah, by okay. Portier Newland. Um, and it was a book set on a, um, a public housing estate. And it was about two brothers and and the group of friends that they grew up in and the, and the ways that their, their life went in completely different ways. And they were just using the same sort of slang and words that we, that we were using at the time. And yeah, you just, it really, seeing yourself, and in a book, because I think maybe I'd seen in TV programs and maybe the occasional film, but I'd never really seen it in a book before. Yeah, it's a real is that allowed moment. And I, I can imagine that sort of unlocking a lot of possibility for you. Absolutely. Definitely. So was there a moment that kind of inspired you to start digging a little further into the stories and the history of West Africa, since the book is is very much based on those traditions? I've always been a bit of a history buff anyway. So it was a toss up between English at university and history and English one um, in the end. But so I've always, and I think some school curriculums are changing now, but I don't always want to do what I'm told to do or learn what everyone else, all the standards. So I'll learn that, but then I want something else. So I've always done my own reading and my own research from throughout my teenage years. And so I always had a passion for West Africa and Africa in general. And I think that I was writing a story based on, I wanted to write a story based on the sea. I was reading about this myth about selkies Mm -hmm. who are seals that turn into women under the moonlight and then fishermen steal their skins and they are stuck as women and they marry them. And then I was kind of thinking, I love those stories and I love The Little Mermaid, but there are so many different versions of mermaids around the world, but I'm still only seeing the same stories. And so I'd heard a little bit about Mami Wata um, growing up, but I hadn't 
I don't know, I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it until then. And then I, when I was writing that story, I was thinking, well, obviously I'm going to have characters that look like me in it. So could I have mermaids that are black? And what else is there? How do the, how do the stories and beliefs of them link up? So in Skin of the Sea, it's, it's, you see the, you have almost the origin story of how maybe black mermaids are represented and how that story has evolved and changed due to the transatlantic slave trade. And that was the bit, that kind of intersection of those stories converging, that's the bit that interested me. So Yomoja is an Orisha who was said to have left, she's an Orisha of river and streams, and she was said to have left those when the first Africans were enslaved and followed them across the ocean. And lots of people believe that she either wrecked the slave ships or she just gave um, the enslaved comfort. And some believe that she carried their souls home. And it was the last bit carrying their souls home that really stood out to me because I was thinking, but what if, I know that a lot of the belief was as well, that if you died, you return home. And I know that was used against a lot of enslaved people in various ways. And I was just thinking, so she's carrying all these, all these, these souls home. But what about the bit in between and why, if you're leaning towards that belief, why can't she do any more than return their souls home? And I think that whole thing of spirituality and, and believing in supreme beings and what you're allowed to do or free will as humans and, and not being able to interfere and we will have to live our own lives. Um, that was all swirling around in my mind at the same time. That sounds like such a great like concept to finish product journey that I, I absolutely love. <clears throat> For our listeners, we've talked a little bit about Mamiwada on the show before, but would you mind kind of giving us a refresher on sort of the story and the folklore itself? So Mamiwata, there are different beliefs of Mamiwata. I think the ones that I focus on in West Africa usually use her as a cautionary tale um, for deep water as well. So she's used as something, you know, slightly scary and dangerous. But again, I wanted to present Mamiwata is something slightly different than that, which is why in Skin of the Sea, they're more saviour-like rather than dangerous. But I think that um, there are lots of variations of mer-beings or mermaids across the continent of Africa, not just Africa, but around the world. But obviously I, I focus on Africa and West Africa. And I found it just interesting the way that, like with every story or belief, they shift and change depending on the person or the location. So there are different mermaids in um, in South Africa. There's one that is said to live in a waterfall. And then you have Mamiwata who, who are said to scare children from deep water. And then you have Yomoja, who is an Orisha, which is a, a deity. And she has been represented as having a, a tail, the tail of a fish. So it was kind of merging some of those beliefs and myths together to get skin of the sea. That actually leads great into my next question, which is because the book is so inspired by West African religious traditions, did you ever find that like there was either a struggle or you were trying to pay attention to how you would balance those traditions while also creating your own versions of these stories? I think it's really important to be respectful yeah. of a spiritual belief system that people still practice nowadays. While it's fiction and some things can be made up, there are certain aspects that you have to be very careful about. Mm. So as well as um, reading and speaking to different people, I spoke to um, an Ifa priest who is from Nigeria but lives in Atlanta now. So um, we spoke for about a year on and off of like, questions that I might have. Things that I didn't want to, what I, what I should really take care with not misrepresenting, um, for example, Eshu in, in the book is sometimes misunderstood and represented as the devil. 
in terms of that Western concept of the devil. And he's not, he's a trickster. And Orishas are more like deified personalities. So they're, they're humans and they're good and bad. So there's no kind of, you can't represent one as completely good or completely bad. And that was really important with him because he's often demonized and I didn't want to do that. So I think it's trying to have that respect whilst using your imagination and knowing the lines that you won't cross mm-hmm. whilst not compromising the story. But I mean, I think that's the same with history as well, because I think that there's a difference. I don't completely rely on written texts because especially if they're just written by Europeans, because that's only one side of the story, but it's hard to necessarily find all of the other that facts when things are passed down orally and stories are passed down orally so that there are different people and ways you have to um, rely on and maybe use reading between the lines I would say Um, so when there are some texts that say that the Portuguese there's a discrepancy between people that say that there were no Africans that were kidnapped and those that say that there were and I think it's obvious that in the very beginning, while the kidnapping may not have been on a mass, mass scale, it was definitely there and definitely one of the early factors. Those are some of the things that I try and slip between and understand and, and try and represent in the story. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think you did a fantastic job with that personally, but that's like a very thoughtful response to that. And I hope that a lot of authors also do that as well. Yeah, I think there's a huge difference between extractive storytelling and immersing yourself and doing research and figuring it out and inviting love and care and deeper curiosity of your source material or your inspired by material among your your readers, which I, I think it's clear that you've done. Thank you. I love books that I've learned something from. And that's like, I lost myself in fractals in the book. And there's only one small bit really that represents them. Although <laughs> it does show in, in other aspects of the story. Cause I think because it, because I was amazed by it and because I found it important, you could see it shining through you know, the repeating patterns in hair and fabric and architecture. So yeah, I think it's little things like that, that you, you wouldn't have necessarily you known if you hadn't started researching, you weren't as immersed in it. I love the rabbit holes that some authors end up going down and then they're like, yeah, that was only for like one chapter of the book, but now it's going to be incorporated in the whole book. Yeah. I love the month to fractals, I think. And it, yeah, I spent a whole month on that, but I enjoyed it. And I usually, I hate math. So, I, you know, I was quite pleased with that. Yeah, that's a win for for everyone there. Awesome. Well, we will get back to talking to you, Natasha, a little bit more about West African traditions and mermaids and Mamiwata just as soon as we get back from a refill. Let's do it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Refill. Julia is moving this week, so it's me, Amanda, here to welcome you and also our newest patrons to The Refill of today's episode. Nadja, Nocturnal Tempest, Ariana, and Carolyn, thank you so much for putting aside some budget every month to support an independent podcast like Spirits. We also want to thank our supporting producer-level patrons, Alicia, Anne, Fruity Chick, Hannah, Jack Marie, Jane, J. Bay, Jessica Kinzer, Jessica Stewart, Measlekins, Little Vomit Spiders Running Around, Megan Moon, Phil Fresh, Captain Jonathan, Molokai, Cosmos, Sarah, Scott, Taylor, and Zazie. And of course, those legend-level patrons, Audra, Bex, Clara, Iron Havoc, Morgan, Mother of Vikings, Sarah, and Beam Me Up Scotty. You can have your name read on every episode of Spirits or just the one where you become a patron at patreon.com slash spiritspodcast. There are years worth of bonus material that includes audio extras early on. I read Julia a different poem every, I think every week. It was amazing. We have monthly bonus urban legend episodes. We have recipe cards, both alcoholic and not for every dang episode. So much to love. Patreon.com slash spiritspodcast. 
This week, I would love to recommend a series that I have mentioned offhandedly, but I never made it my recommendation for the episode. It's the Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich. There is a new installment coming out later this year. I got an advanced copy because I'm special and a podcaster, and that's one of the main perks of podcasting, is uh, getting advanced copies of books. God, it's so good, guys. If you love mythology, if you love snarkiness, if you love mysteries, there is nothing like the Rivers of London series. Pick it up today. And I am so excited to share something we've been working on over here at Multitude HQ for several months. You have been asking for it. And finally, it's arrived. The Multitude Discord is live and free and open to the public. So any fan of Multitude shows like Spirits or any of our others is welcome and encouraged to join. If you don't know what Discord is or you haven't joined one before, think of it as a digital hub for an online community. You can come to discuss your favorite shows, stay to share recipes, exchange book recommendations, make clubs, play games, meet a pen pal, or just bask in the glory of daily pet pictures and so much more in our many different channels. You can say hi to other Multitude fans and, of course, us hosts who hang out there as well. Check out live streams of games that we do right in the Discord and only for the Discord. Plus, if you're a multi-crew member, you get access to exclusive events and channels that feature crew-only polls, announcements, and even a private lobby. If it sounds fun, you can join via our community page at multitude.productions community. That's multitude.productions slash community. We are sponsored this week by Inked Gaming. This is a trusted supplier of premium gaming goods that is basically a one-stop shop for customers all over the world. If you're planning on doing some shopping for gaming gear to add to your collection or to buy gifts for friends, you gotta check out Inked Gaming. Their site is packed with everything you need to up your game, including playmats, mouse pads, dice, mat bags, deck boxes, sleeves, and a lot more. You can even get customized items to let you make a personalized piece of gear with a unique design, logo, or even art of your very own. I'm a huge fan of making silly memes into physical things. So if you are looking for a gift for someone you love and there is a meme that you love or have made or a silly phrase that you use amongst yourselves, like in your group chat, get them like a mouse pad or a, a dice box carved in wood with the thing that you say every day over text. Highly recommend it. As a sponsor of Spirits, Inked has gifted us with a very nice perk that we are happy to share. It is a 10% off discount. To get that, all you have to do is visit inkedgaming.com spirits and use the code spirits when you're ready to check out. Thank you, Team Inked. We are also sponsored this week by Brooklinen. If you are looking to upgrade some part of your life, of your routine, you gotta check out Brooklinen. They make the softest and most luxurious home essentials. One of my friends texted me recently and was like, I needed to get, you know, I need to get sheets for my new place. Like, is Brooklinen legit? Is it as good as you say on spirits? People, I don't lie to you. Brooklinen is so good. I am, in fact, saving up for some Brooklinen additional home essentials. I want to make my bath mat Brooklinen. I want to make my robe Brooklinen. I am going to get a robe for my grandma from Brooklinen for Mother's Day. I am so excited. They're so cozy. Towels, robes, bath mats, home essentials. Brooklinen has got you covered. Genuinely, I frankly can't sleep in anything but Brooklinen these days. And that's the poshest thing about me. So give the gift of comfort that your loved ones deserve and get it for less at Brooklinen. Go to brooklinen.com and use promo code SPIRITS to get $20 off your purchase of $100 or more. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N en.com and enter promo code spirits for $20 off. Brooklinen, the curators of comfort. That's a new tagline, Brooklinen. I like it. 
And finally, we are sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. If you want to join the Wednesday Morning Therapy Club, there is uh, no better way to do it, in my opinion, than BetterHelp. If you're looking for something that is more affordable than traditional offline therapy and that lets you really find a good match. So much about therapy is about your kind of chemistry and relationship with your therapist. And I tried four or five therapists before I found the one via BetterHelp. Her name's also Amanda. Gotta love it. That I really click with and that I can be honest with and also like hear her feedback in a way that really resonates with me. It is so important to make time for yourself and to make sure that you are taking care of you and you're making your primary relationship in your life the one you have with yourself. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anybody on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. Once more, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and Spirits listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com spirits. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash spirits. And now let's get back to the show. I don't know if you're a, a cocktail person, Natasha, but if you have a particular cocktail that you love, we would like to hear about it. I was going to say, I feel quite like I should have a cocktail. I feel like I should have a cocktail. <laughs> so I will say, I think my favorite one is I'm that person that gets to the menu. I'm like, ooh, ooh. Um, I do like a porn star martini. Mm. And I'm, I take great pleasure in telling people who pour their shot of Prosecco into the cocktail, that you should be using it to cleanse your palate, not dumping it in the cocktail, because not everyone knows that. Can you describe a porn star martini for those of us who... I've never heard of this. Yeah. yeah. I can't actually describe what's exactly in it. I know it's a passion fruit puree, and I think vodka. I never really care what's in it, just as long as it tastes nice. Hell yeah. That's how we feel. But you do have a shot of Prosecco. I do know that. It's got a few <laughs> things in it. Yeah. I don't, I can't believe you asked that. I don't know. I just drink them. I don't make them. <laughs> That's great. No, Prosecco as a chaser, I am all about that. That's amazing. I really like beer shot combos or boiler makers. There's a lot of like regional names for them. And I was at a cocktail bar once where they served like a whiskey based cocktail and then like two ounces of like cheap American beer. And I was like, this is perfect. Like, this is exactly what I want sometimes. It's, oh, it's so good. <laughs> I love that. Next time we go to a bar, absolutely going to try the Port and Star Martini. That sounds incredible. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the journey of writing this book. I know we've talked about like all of the research that went into it and kind of where you were coming from when you got into writing the book. Was it one of those things where you just like sat down one day and it was done because we've had writers that have come on and said that? Or was it something that like you took a lot of time with? You mentioned spending a month on fractals. So I imagine it's probably the latter. It was a lot of time, but it felt quite quick because I think okay. there, there was other, you know, if you speak to most writers, they've they've written other books that, you know, are never going to see the light of day. So I have written other books, but they were never, it's almost like I was forcing myself to finish them. And I think everyone, every writer can probably speak or would like to have that story that just burns through them. Mm. And it then becomes so easy to write in terms of, I was thinking about this very early, I think it was January, 2017. And then I wrote about 20,000 words to see, to feel it out, to see if I liked it or not. And then I was doing research at the same time. And then it got to the summer and I think I'd written about 30,000 words. And I thought I really love, I'm, I'm thinking about it all the time. I really love it. And I always thought that I was an organic writer and didn't have to plot. And I could just, you know, just write and the story would come out. And I realized that no, which I should have known anyway, because I'm quite anal and organized. <laughs> I needed to plot it. So I spent the whole summer plotting it, 
to within an inch of its life um, and things still changed anyway. But what it meant then was if I got stuck on one bit, I could skip forward to write a particular scene that I was excited about. So I kept the momentum going rather than getting stuck. So then, yeah, I took the summer to plan it and then wrote the rest from October 2017 to March 2018. Mm. I feel like it was quite quick. Yeah. Because I was teaching full time as well at the time. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. And I do, I've got three kids as well. So no big deal. I don't know how I did it. Actually, <laughs> you know, me looking back and thinking, I don't <laughs> know how I did that. I wrote at lunch times. I wrote actually in staff meetings and in school assemblies. I know the head teacher probably saw me doing it, but she never said anything. The kids in my class knew as well. They were like, are you, are you, cause I would speak about writing because writing is one of the lowest attaining subjects usually because kids just don't really enjoy it so I'm like I'm writing this is what I'm writing da, 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 da. Um, and they, they'd say oh we see you writing your book in assembly I said no I'm writing down your names if you're talking um, they, they, would just, <laughs> they would just laugh at me because anyone was I was writing but yeah I just fit I just would write in chunks when I could and then it I think because I know if I have a good idea that I love because I go to sleep thinking about it and I wake up thinking about it and that story was just yeah it just, I was obsessed with it. That's incredible. I love that you're like, I don't know, how, looking back, I don't know how I did it. That's just such a mood where you're like, you go through a, like a really intense thing and you look back and you're like, go past me. All right, sure. Awesome yeah. job. Uh, that's that's so great. I was reading in an interview with you that uh, both you and your mother were diagnosed with dyslexia and how that actually helped inspire you to become an avid reader. And like as someone who also has learning differences, I felt that vibe really hard. Like everyone's always really surprised when they're like, oh, you like reading? Okay. Do you want to talk about that a little bit and kind of that experience of how you became such an avid reader? Because you talked about how you became a reader very early on. So I wasn't dyslexic, but my mum was. Oh, okay. I would say that when she, it was important to her to have me read because, because she couldn't. Mm -hmm. And so even though she was not a reader, she would buy books from a very early age, like a baby, and I would be surrounded by books. And I remember being about, I must have, I have a really weird memory. My friends don't believe me when I say I remember things like so far away, but that's usually because they can't remember what they had for dinner yesterday. <laughs> um, I remember a favorite book when I was three is Lenny the Lamb. And um, she would skip over the words that she couldn't read, which then as I was growing older became quite a lot. Um, and so I would sound them out and then read them to her. And then it became to the point where I would read any letters, official letters that she was sent quite early on and help her to write any letters that she had to. I helped her write checks. I would write it out and then she would, she had the most beautiful handwriting. She would, then she would copy what I'd written for her. And I think definitely having that passion and being not pushed, but surrounded by books definitely contribute to the fact that I love them so much. It's inspiring when someone, um, the fact that she would try and read to me, even, even when I was kind of overtaking her capacity, she would still try and read to me. And she had a very difficult school life and her main focus was it wasn't going to be the same for me. So that's like such a beautiful like gift and moment and memory that your mother shared with you there. Like I I remember being a child and my mother like reading books to me and like doing all the little funny voices. And I think that's why I love reading so much is because my mother had the ability to kind of transport me to other places with stories. And I wanted to be able to do that for myself. So I very much relate to that. How do you approach reading and your love of books with your kids as a person? 
person who loves reading in books so much, I imagine that if I ever have kids one day, I'll have to know that they're their own people and they might not love, you know, reading the same way that I do or share my exact interests. And, you know, you kind of get the kid you get and you do the best you can with them. So how do you approach that? What kinds of stories do you tell them and what kinds of stories do they like? I was just thinking about that as I was saying that my mom surrounded me with books. I don't necessarily think that surrounding your kids with books means that they're always going to be a reader because my three kids are completely different. The oldest loved reading until he got to about 13, 14, and then just stopped for a couple of years, probably because it was taken over by the PlayStation instead. And the world is not easy on boys who love to read. Although he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really care. I think he was struggling to find books that he liked. Sure. So he went through a phase of The Hunger Games and Divergent, and he liked the Darren Shan books about zombies. And then he just couldn't find any more that he was really into. And I, I get that because there's times where I'm a bit itchy and I'm like, I, you know, I'll have a giant to be read pile, but none of them. And it's not because of the book, it's because I'm not in the mood for that particular book at that time. But yeah, I would buy them all the books that I loved growing up, as I do with toys and things like that. Like, I like this, you're you're going to like it and hope <laughs> that they will like it. But trying to get a range as well and making sure that, because I've got two boys and a girl, making sure that it's a wide range of stories. And I hate those anthologies that are like boy, stories for boys and stories for girls. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it makes me really cross. But yeah, surrounded with a different range of stories and different, different you know, poetry as well. And, and mini plays, if I can. And we would always have a routine of reading before bed. And when I was super strict with my older child, I would say, you know, you can play on the PlayStation for as long as you want, but you match it with your reading time. So that was quite a good way of keeping him reading. My youngest has just finished Amari and the Night Brothers. And he loves it. He's like, I can't wait for the second book. Can I have it for my birthday? So inside I'm like, yes. (laughs) Um, But my daughter, yeah, she, nothing. She's not really into reading as much. She does read, but not at the rate that I do. And I have to accept that she's her own person and that hopefully she'll find what she enjoys reading and and comes back to it. Maybe she's just savoring the books too, like taking her her time with it and being like, ah, yes, I'm immersed in this story. I love it so much. That's what she'll say, but I'm not sure it's true. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Well, I mean, the trouble is when reading becomes associated with, you know, stress or pressure or you're a slower reader and people, you know, expect other things. I completely sympathize with that. And my youngest brother, similarly, like didn't find a ton that he was interested in until I brought Agatha Christie on like a vacation we took together and he like tore through it. And so to this day, you know, the sort of murder mystery and detective stories, whether it's miniseries, movies, books, is something that that brings us together. I tried this with my siblings because I was the huge reader in the family of just saying like, listen, you know, library's open. Here's your library card that I laminated with tape. And if you ever want to check something out, you know, come check it out. Like it, I think, takes a lot of restraint for those of us who are extremely voracious readers to sort of let people come to the things that they are interested in. So I, I commend you on that. <laughs> it does, because I'm always trying to force people to read certain things as well. I'm like, you'll love this. And I'm thinking, they might not, but you might. So at least try it. Give it a try. Yeah, I do that. And I think because because I talk for so long, you're always trying to find books that you think the child might like, I think, because it's amazing to be that person that gets them into reading. Or, you know, the best feeling is when you find a writer or a series that you love and there's loads of books like Agatha Christie, you could just tear through them all. 
but yeah, I think it's it is about just letting them letting them choose. And I don't know how you in England when we teach reading, there's certain and I get this, you you work through certain levels of books to increase your your reading skills. But I would also have them come up with the book that they wanted to read as well as the book that they have to read. Because otherwise it is just a chore then. And when are they, you know, I don't think any book is too hard if you want to try and read it. And as long as you're supported and you're enjoying it, and that's what counts. Yeah. Hundred percent, totally. To kind of bring us back to the the mythology of it all and the the folkloric traditions, I know that Mamiwara is very much the focus of the book, but you include a lot of other various like creatures and spirits and stuff like that. Are there some other ones that are your favorites that you want to talk about? My ears pricked up at Senegalese fairies. Was that right? Yeah. So I think I didn't want to stop at mermaids because telling a story that represents you know non Eurocentric magical beings I felt like I needed to I didn't have a choice in terms of giving myself a choice and wanting to include as many as I could so when I think about and and this isn't necessarily um a criticism but when I when I think about werewolves I think about certain type I don't think about other shapeshifters or or maybe other cultures because that's kind of what I've seen in the media when I think about films and and, may, and even books, not now, but a couple of years ago when I was writing. Yeah, the same thing with mermaids when there's other, there are so many versions of stories and beliefs about them around the world. The same thing for fairies and vampires and shapeshifters. And so I wanted to include West African versions where I could complement the story with West African mermaids. And so learning about Yumbos, which are Senegalese fairies, and different beliefs of, of the Sasabonsan, which are vampire-like creatures. And I love, you know, I like gore and stuff as well. So I'm like, that has to be included in the book. Anything that can eat or attack anyone, <laughs> I, I'm going to have it in there, but with a different twist to it. So I really enjoyed finding more out and increasing my own knowledge of the different myths around West Africa and all the different creatures and, see, and seeing it just continually blew my mind the more you know when you think you know a certain amount and then you read and then you finally talk to some people and you're finding out even more and more and I was just thinking oh, I can't believe I haven't seen this I can't believe I haven't seen a tv series with this I can't believe I haven't read like at least 10 20 books with you know about this so I think that was making me more excited that I could bring a story to life and to show those different creatures and myths yeah it still excites me now when I think about it. And I have a book about Yumbos floating in the back of my mind and the were hyenas. So yeah, I think that's when you know you're excited. Because yeah, you just like have to write this and have to write that. And that would be a really good story and that and that and it all leads on. So I mean, that kind of leads to one of my favorite questions to ask authors, which is what other stories, what other kind of stories do you want to be telling in the future? I think at the minute, I'm definitely focused on West Africa in the past, but blending that magical element, even though, you know, even though Skin of the Sea has elements and, and the origin of Simi is through enslaved people, the focus of the book is not that. The focus of the book and the story is magic and strength and family and love. And I think those are not stories that are often told when it comes to West Africa or traditionally maybe um, historical Black fiction. And I think shifting that focus onto that fantastical element and those stories of love and triumph and courage is definitely something that I'm focusing on for the foreseeable future. Incredible. I love that so much. Well, I love reading it. So that works out really well for all of us in your readership. 
That is true. 100%. This is just kind of a, a fun aside. I was reading your bio and it said that you're passionate about stationery and notebooks and stuff like that. Can we gush about that for a little bit? <laughs> I want to know is so this is a thing that I think many readers have in common. Is it because we grew up with so much paper material? Is it because as kids, all anybody can get us is either books or notebooks? Why does this happen to us? I feel like it's such a shared trait. I think I love that back to school feeling as well. You know, when you get your notebooks mm. and your pens and you get to you get to choose everything. And also I think there's that, you know, the association between the brain when you're reading something on an actual physical page. For me, it's the same with writing. So I write um, in longhand in a notebook and then I type it up. And I find mm -hmm. it sort of almost like another level of editing that goes it goes through because of that. If I can read my handwriting, because I have to admit I have the worst handwriting and sometimes I can't actually even read it myself. Because especially when I get excited, I just end up scrawling like a toddler. <laughs> I also feel, and I've, I'm sure other, I've spoken to other writers who feel like this as well. You have a new notebook and it fills you, you need a new notebook. Oh yeah. But I'm like, I need no, a new notebook because it's a new chapter. Or <laughs> so I end up getting having too many but and but I, yeah I just love that whole new that crisp feeling of a new page and it just it feels like it helps my inspiration and motivation but really it's just an excuse because I like buying notebooks <laughs> no but I 100% understand the like idea of the extra level of editing by copying something from longhand written out to the computer I also find it so much easier to edit typed up stuff by printing it out and then doing all yes. of my edits like physically. And I don't know why that is. I think probably it's because when it's on a computer and I can just so easily change it, I'm just like, I don't want to change it. It's too easy. But printing it out, I'm like, oh, I can see the edits I'm making. I can see the cross out. I can see the word change that I did. So I 100% agree that like, yeah, having something in a physical form just makes it easier sometimes. And I think you catch things as well that you don't see on the screen. And also with a notebook, if you're carrying it with you all the time, I'm not going to carry my laptop all the time. So, and if I don't write something down, I'll forget about it. I did, so I have one by my bed because I know, you know, that time, just as you're falling asleep, sometimes the best sort of oh, like yeah. ideas come or you're like, oh, that's how I can fix that. And if I don't get up and write it down, it's gone. Even though I think there's no way I'm ever going to forget this. Like it's an amazing idea. It's gone the next day. And I don't like doing it on my phone. I like to actually write it down. No. And I've, I've had that thing where I wake up in the middle of the night and have a great idea. And then I jot it down on my phone and then I wake up the next day and I look at the sentence, I'm like, what the fuck does that mean? What were you talking about? Yeah, it's like, Nutella said, get on, blah, 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 because you're yeah. relying on predictive text. It doesn't make sense. You're like, what were you thinking, 3 a.m., Julia? What was going on in your brain in that moment? <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah, but I love notebooks, too. And I, I just had to, I'm currently packing up my office because I'm moving. And I was just like, I might need a whole box just for notebooks. Is that a problem? It's probably okay, right? I think it is a problem. <laughs> I've got a whole box in my house. And then, and then I, you know, I buy these new ones and I just come back to the same one because I have like a it's almost like a leather so you've started me now you've started me off it's like a leather cover and you can it's reusable basically so you buy inserts to put inside it so I always come back to that because now it's all battered and soft and yeah so I should probably just stop buying them but yeah I can't no I love that and I I love the idea that you come back to the same one you're like ah oh, this is the novel notebook this is the thing that's gonna get the novel done is it a Filofax? No, it's... Um, or like in that style? It's a traveler's notebook. Oh. So you, you can get different inserts that go inside it, diaries as yeah. well, um, as well as like little wallet things. And yeah, it's just, yeah, it's amazing. I love that. That's such a good idea. 
I might have to ask you what the brand is. That's amazing. It used to be called Midori, but it's Traveler's Factory now. Okay. Um, and then I have a German one, which is a Rotor Faden, and they have clips in, so you can clip notebooks in. So that one, those are my two favorite. I love that. Natasha, thank you again. I can't wait for all of our listeners to buy your book and books in the future and become just dedicated fans. So could you remind us where we can find your work and you online? You can find me on Twitter uh, at Skin of the Sea, although I'm on there sporadically. Um, and Natasha underscore Bowen underscore on Instagram. Skin of the Sea is out in most retailers at the minute across the US. And the sequel is coming out this fall. So that's very exciting. I'm excited. Yes. Is the pre-order for the sequel available yet? Not yet. I think in the next few weeks it will be. Okay. So by the time this episode comes out, it should be available for pre-order and you can find links to both of those in the show notes of this episode. Beautiful. Well, Natasha, thank you again. And everybody remember, stay creepy, stay cool. Spirits was created by Amanda McLaughlin, Julia Shafini, and Eric Schneider, with music by Kevin McLeod and visual design by Allison Wakeman. Keep up with all things creepy and cool by following us at Spirits Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Tumblr. We also have all of our episode transcripts, guest appearances, and merch on our website, as well as a form to send us in your urban legends and your advice from folklore questions at spiritspodcast.com. Join our member community on Patreon, patreon.com slash spiritspodcast, for all kinds of behind-the-scenes goodies. Just a dollar gets you access to audio extras with so much more, like recipe cards, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic, for every single episode, director's commentaries, real physical gifts, and more. We are a founding member of Multitude, an independent podcast collective and production studio. If you like spirits, you will love the other shows that live on our website at multitude.productions. Above all else, if you liked what you heard today, please text one friend about us. That's the very best way to help keep us growing. Thanks for listening to Spirits. We'll see you next week. Bye.